so excited to be here on this beautiful Mother's Day morning. I've never spoken at a Sunday morning service before. My former pastor asked me to once, but Rick ended up speaking for me that day. I'm not going to do that to you today, but I did bring him with me. Rick, will you stand up and give everybody a wave? Rick is, of course, the co-host of the Rick and Bubba show that we all know and love, but he's also become quite the preacher and Bible teacher and has recently become an ordained minister and will be officiating our niece's wedding in two weeks. And I brought Brooks with me, my high school senior who graduates one week from today. I can't believe it. Brooks, will you stand up and give everybody a wave? This is our son, Rick Calls Big Love on the radio. And he sure has lived up to that name. He is one of the kindest, most loving people you would ever want to meet. Um, Brooks is an encourager. And most days, I need a little encouragement. So, Brody, you're going to have to step up to the plate on that one next year, and you're going to have to come tell me goodnight every night before you go to bed as well, like Brooks does. But, (laughs) Uh, and so, Brody, will you stand up? Brody is our junior, and he's going to be leaving the nest next year, too. Can't believe that. But this little guy is, uh, is my buddy. He's a great listener, and he's an even better judge of character. He's got uh, great discernment. He's wise beyond his years. Both of these guys are fantastic. They are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. They are a blessing to my soul, and I love them. They and their siblings have taught me so much. God has used my children to refine me, to humble me, to grow me, to teach me. But they are not God. And they do not deserve the kind of love and admiration that He does. They do merit love and admiration but not the kind reserved only for God, that number one spot. What I'm saying to you today is that my children and your children do not deserve our worship. Now that seems obvious, right? But let's talk about what worship is. Hebrews 12, 28 tells us to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I'll tell you what most moms are consumed with. And dads. You don't get a pass on this either. John Calvin rightly observed that the human heart is an endless idol factory. 
Now, while I don't agree with him on all of his theology, I agree with him on this. We will make an idol out of almost anything. Cars, homes, careers, education. Philosophies and ideals can become more important to us than God. Religion even. That's what got Jesus killed. Because people loved their religion and way of life more than God and weren't willing to see him when he was standing right in front of them. But today is Mother's Day. And so I want to focus in on what all of us know to be true about ourselves as women and as moms. That our children can become, and often are, more important to us than God. And that, my friends is idolatry. And I want to point out that it doesn't have to be a living child that we make into an idol. It can be one who has already gone to heaven. And it doesn't even have to be a child we've conceived yet. It could be the idea of that child that becomes the idol to us. Not that wanting a child is wrong. It's not wrong. And grieving a child is not wrong. But all of it has to be in its proper place, bent to the will of God. We don't have to look far in the Bible to see how important having a child is to women and to men. God had revealed to Abraham and Sarah that he was going to give them a son. But he took a sweet time about it. And of course, we know that Sarah took matters into her own hands and gave her maidservant to her husband to get a son for herself through her. And you know, Abraham's probably looking at Hagar going, hmm, this might not be so bad. What a lack of leadership on his part. It was a ridiculous idea and showed great lack of trust in God's ability to act. He should have stopped that idea in its tracks. God had promised them a son. All they needed to do was wait and wait some more. I'm telling you, God is able to act even when the situation seems hopeless. Sometimes all we have to do is be still and know that he is God and he is able to fulfill his promises. Abraham ended up with two sons. And we all know how that turned out. A whole lot of hostility between the two moms and between the two sons. But Abraham loved both of his sons. And those wrong decisions caused a whole lot of heartbreak for him. But let's call it what it was. It was sin. It was sexual sin. Abraham knew he was only supposed to have one wife and that the marriage bed was sacred. He knew that. And Sarah was just impatient. She wanted what she wanted, and she wanted it now. Can we relate? It's so easy to see why God wants these particular 
examples of human failings recorded for us in the Bible because they're so typical of how we act. All of us, we're sinners. We are selfish and impatient and fleshly, and we don't trust God to act on our behalf. We always try to take matters into our own hands to get what we want. And in this case, Sarah wanted a son. Our modern culture tries to paint women in so many different ways. But the prevailing one right now is smart and strong and educated, self-sufficient. The culture wants us to believe that we don't need a man at all. And they're not even subtle about it. In the new Wonder Woman movie, they don't just suggest it. They outright say it. We've heard things like, diamonds are a girl's best friend. But you know what's on the minds of most of the young women I know? Babies. It's been my observation that what a girl really wants is a baby. And she'll give up almost anything to get that baby. She'll take all kinds of shots and medication that make her gain weight. She'll give up her career in a heartbeat for that baby. And when she finally holds that baby in her arms, it's like heaven. There's really nothing like it. And it can't just be any baby. It has to be her baby. The bond between mother and child is unique and strong and never-ending. But it was never meant to overshadow her relationship with God or with her husband. It was meant to enhance it. The love she has for her husband should grow as she watches him become a father. The love she has for God should grow out of the great gratitude she has for this wonderful gift he has given her. But a lot of times it doesn't. All of that gets out of whack, and the focus becomes disproportionately on the child. I read a book once that called that child-centered parenting, and the results are devastating. A child doesn't want or need to be the center of everyone's attention. A child wants to be a part of something bigger than himself or herself. He wants and needs a family. He needs to be pointed to God, not himself. When a child is a part of a family that works the way God intended for it to, the father, as the head of the household, respected by his wife and kids, who loves his wife and children, and who points them both to God, his standards, his law, his word, not just as an ideal, but as a way of life. And the mother and wife as a helper to her husband, not as a controller to get what she wants from him, but someone who truly loves and respects who he is and wants him to be the best he can be. When a child's mother and father are who they are supposed to be in Christ, there's peace in the home and in the heart and soul of that child. And he thrives. We think we're supposed to give everything to our kids. Not so. We are not supposed to give the world to our kids. We are to give them God. 
We are to teach our children his statutes. We are supposed to help write his law on the tablets of their hearts. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 7 say this. You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We are supposed to be talking about God's word to our children all the time. Here's one. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Leviticus 19.32. I'm convinced that we've just stopped teaching our children to respect their elders. Or maybe it's just that the true church is getting smaller in society because I don't see it. Children, respect and honor your elders, not because I said it or because your mom or your dad said it, but because God said it in his word. God also says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. Leviticus 19, 2 through 3. Revere. That means to honor, respect, and be devoted to. Do we revere anything anymore? Today's society is all about self. What do I feel? What do I want? How can I fulfill my desires? I was listening to a sermon on the radio the other day, and the preacher said this, not many of us are theological atheists, but many of us are practical atheists. We go about our business not giving one thought to what God has for us. Instead of asking, what do I want? What do I need? We should be asking, What does God want from me today? How can I better serve him? How can I bring him joy with my life? Several years ago, Rick and I were speaking at a marriage conference, and I had already spoken on Friday night. And the next morning, I I just didn't have it in me to speak again. It hadn't been that long since Bronner had gone to heaven and I was still grieving. And I just felt tired and weary and worn. But the praise band began singing a song about the joy of the Lord being my strength. And it made me see Nehemiah 8.10 in a new light. It wasn't about my joy. It was about God's. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The thought that I might bring him joy in getting up and giving that speech gave me the strength to do it. And I did. And I did it with joy because I could feel his pleasure. 
I could feel him watching me. I could feel him strengthening me. And I could feel his love for me. What I went through in losing a child was crushing. But what I want you to know is that it was meant to crush me. The Bible tells us that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. People in their natural state are evil. Our thoughts, our intentions, our motives are mainly selfish, self-centered, and rooted in pride. In God's covenant with Noah, we think of the rainbow as this beautiful promise of the continuation of life. But read the text in Genesis chapter 9. You know what the rainbow really is? It's a reminder to God not to kill us, to wipe us off the face of the earth because we're so wicked. God said that when he sees the rainbow, he'll remember that he promised Noah that he wouldn't kill us. Well, in that light, it makes sense that one particular movement wants to use the rainbow as its symbol. I'm sure they don't even realize it. But I know who does, and I know who's behind it. Satan is using that symbol as an in-your-face to God. We can do anything we want, and you can't wipe us out because you promised, and you can't go back on your promises. We're wicked. All of us. Don't try to convince yourself that you're not. We're all evil. Decadent, sinful, selfish, prideful people apart from God. I've been really busy lately, and I confess that there were um, several days that went by uh, when I didn't have a quiet time with with the Lord. And I was shocked by my own thoughts. For instance, I went running on this running trail by this creek, and there was this sweet young couple with three cute little girls sitting there by the trail having a picnic. And I thought, well, they're just as pretty as a picture. And so I I took their picture for them. And I, I ran along, and as I was running... I I was thinking to myself, well, that sure was a nice thing to do. And and pride started creeping in because of it. I was proud of myself. Even though the motivation was pure in the beginning, it wasn't moments later before the pride started coming in. And I realized that I have to take every thought captive to God. And if I don't spend enough time with him, or if I spend too much time away from him, and if too many days go by without focused attention on his word, sin creeps back up to the surface of my soul. I just finished my second book in a row on humility because I'm convinced it's the key to godliness and that pride is the root of all sin. Now, the Bible tells us that money is the root of all kinds of sin, but even that goes back to pride. We all know that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
because we've all read it in Proverbs 16, 18, or at least heard it. We think that these men who got caught in adultery are just dirty old men filled with lust. I don't think that's it at all. I think it's pride. They want to prove to themselves that they've still got it. Um, it's all about self. So young women, if some older man tries uh, to hit on you, it is not because you're so fine. He just wants to use you to stroke his own ego. It's not about you at all. And it's definitely not love. Don't let Satan use you for the downfall of a great man or for the destruction of a marriage. One of the things that God said to me after uh, Bronner went to heaven was um, about holiness. I, I looked up to heaven and I said, but we were so happy. We were so happy, God. And I heard him say to me in my spirit, but I want you to be holy. Holy. Set apart for God's good purposes and obedient to his commands. The week I found out that I was pregnant with Bronner, I had prayed for God to crucify the sin in my life. I was a Christian when I prayed that prayer, but I wanted to be a stronger one. And do you know how he strengthened me? By crushing me. Because there's nothing good in me but him. I needed more of him, less of me. And God knew that taking my son would break me. I didn't even know what sin needed to be crushed out of me when I prayed that prayer. But I do now. That's what suffering does. When we are weak, he is strong. When we don't have the answers, he does. When we are looking at our lifeless child and realizing that we can't do anything about it, we see that we're not in control. We see our limitations, our weaknesses. We see that we are but dust. But God is not. God is all-powerful. He's the author of life, and in him is the breath of every creature. It is him we are to worship. Nothing and no one else. He is God, the Almighty. And when we see that about him, his power and our weaknesses, well, that's humbling. And that's where he wants us to be. Humble. Because our pride will destroy us. And now I know that the three things God wanted to root out of me and taking my son from me were worldliness, pride, and self-reliance. And those are the things that creep back up to the surface anytime I'm far from the Lord. Let me say it again. There is nothing good in us. That's why we have to stay rooted in God. That's why we have to go to him every day to renew our spirits. 
There's a constant battle between flesh and spirit. And only by his spirit can we become holy. And we are to be holy. God says it is in in the Old Testament. He says it in the New Testament. And he said it to me specifically. But I want you to be holy. And holy means to be set apart for God's good purposes and obedient to his commands. The modern church loves missions. We love to go as God said to go. But let's not forget that the Great Commission isn't just about the going. It's about teaching as well. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. Our faith is more than emotion. Our faith is alive and it's active. If we are alive in him with his Holy Spirit, then we are active. We are actively pursuing God every day and we are obedient to what he has to say because he alone is good. We need his instruction. We need his counsel. We need him every day to renew our minds, to make fresh our spirits and lead God and direct us because without him, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's who we are. We're sinners. But by his grace, we have been made new. Romans 8, 16 and 17 tell us that we are children of God and if children then heirs, Fellow heirs with God and with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering assures us that we are children of God, but he doesn't want us to wallow in it. He wants us to learn from it, to grow from it, to be refined by it, to be humbled by it, to listen in the midst of it and hear him say, peace, be still. He is able to calm the storms of the seas and he is able to calm the storms of our lives. Peace, be still. Be still and know that he is God and he is able to act on our behalf. Wait for him. And when you get a word from him, act on it. The word is living and active. Let it be alive in you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. What we see in this chapter is a great king with a great kingdom who's filled with pride about it. And God gives him a dream that's troubling to his spirit, even though he doesn't even know what the dream means. But he wants to know. And so he sends for Daniel, who is known to be able to interpret dreams by his God. And the dream is troubling to Daniel as well, because he sees that the dream is about the king and a great trial that he would have to endure. 
Daniel tells the king this and tells him exactly what the dream means and exactly what was going to happen to the king. And that's where we pick up in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, seven years, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned for me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. First of all, notice that in verse 28 that all of this happened after 12 months. It was a whole year from the time King Nebuchadnezzar had that dream and Daniel interpreted it for him that it came true. When we get a word from the Lord and it doesn't happen right away, we forget about it. Or we act like Abraham and Sarah and try to take matters into our own hands because we're impatient. But when we get a word from the Lord, we need to rest assured that it will happen sooner or later. And let me tell you, my friends, we've got a word from the Lord. There may be a rainbow in the sky right now, but there's a fire coming. And we don't need to be lax about it just because God's taking his time about it. I used to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because I was thinking about myself, as is typical for human beings. But I realized that if he came right now, a whole lot of people would be in a whole lot of trouble. And so we count God's slowness as salvation 
maybe not for ourselves, but for somebody else. There was another time I heard from God after we lost Bronner. I had received a book in the mail uh, written by a pastor whose young son had drowned like Bronner had. In fact, I think this pastor had lost two sons, one trying to save the other in the same drowning accident. And it upset me so much when I read that that I yelled at God, why the children? Why do you take the children? Why this pastor who had given his life in service to you? Why me? Why Bronner, who I wanted and loved? There is nothing worse than losing a child. I know you lost your son, but you got him back after three days. Three days. And I heard him say to me in my spirit, but what about the others? They're all mine. You're going to get this glorious reunion with your son, but I won't get that with all of mine. Rick would call that shut up juice. And I sure did. Shut up. God answered me. And I heard. And I believed. It was probably the first time I ever felt compassion for God. How he must be devastated by all the sin in the world. By all the hard hearts who refuse to receive him, who failed to acknowledge and honor him as God, to revere him as creator and father, who look at his son and say to his salvation, no thanks. Jesus wept, and I know why. We break God's heart every day with all of our sin and selfishness and pride. But learn what Nebuchadnezzar learned, that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And learn what I learned, that there is something much worse than having a child in heaven. My separation from Bronner is temporary, but God's separation from so many will be eternal. First and foremost, God is Father. And He is looking for sons and daughters. And He has chosen to use us to help Him get those sons and daughters back into His presence and in right standing with Himself. That's what God taught me through losing a son. Be holy as God is holy, be humble as Jesus is humble and be about his business. For all his works are right and his ways just. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So to recap, number one, don't make your children or the children you desire to have the object of your worship. Worship God alone. Accept his will. Wait on his timing. And remember that he is able to act on your behalf. Number two, a healthy family is one in proper alignment with God first, the husband as the head of his wife, and the children as part 
of the bigger whole being taught to respect and honor not only their parents, but all of their elders. I'm convinced this is not being done in our society anymore, and it's sad to see. But we're better than that. Let's teach our children to respect their elders. Number three, humble yourselves before God. You do not know more than he does. Adhere to his standards, his word, and his law. They are for our own good. And know that if you don't humble yourself, God will do it for you. Four, suffering is a part of the Christian walk. Not only because suffering humbles us, but because it teaches us so many things to rely on God, not ourselves, that this world isn't heaven, but there's one waiting. Be patient for it and do all you can for this world while you can because the door is going to close one day for all of us. Don't leave anything undone. Suffering teaches us how to be holy, how to hope. It grows our character and makes us better ambassadors for Christ. And lastly, God is seeking sons and daughters for himself. Let him use you and your children to make that happen.